0: Hey everyone, it's Isaac Smolden, the production manager here at my house. Just a heads up that today's episode of My Voice is part one of a two-part series with our guest. For part two, please tune in two weeks from the day that this episode releases. My Voice is a chance for those who have struggled with addiction, homelessness, depression, and domestic violence to have a candid conversation about their life experience, current situation, and future goals and aspirations. Every episode is conducted anonymously to facilitate a comfortable and safe place for guests to tell their story. My Voice is hosted by Mike Sisson, who works as a case manager at the My House facilities in Wasilla, Alaska. We now join a My Voice conversation already in progress.
1: if you had to choose between laughing uncontrollably every time somebody gave horrible news to you, like without being able to control it, like someone comes up to you and they're like, my mom just died and you start laughing hysterically. If you had to choose between doing that for the rest of your life or, um, screaming out random obscenities in settings when you're supposed to be quiet. Which one would you choose
2: well i I would choose the obscenities because I feel like it's less it's it's not as like I'm laughing at you I'm like getting people to laugh at me mm you know okay. so I, I would choose that yeah
1: okay that's a pretty good answer do you do you attend church ever uh no do you ever attend oh how about meetings twenty four seven so what about in a meeting when someone's sharing and you just yell out of obscenities? You're cool with that?
2: Oh, yeah, no, totally. Like with like the settings, um, with certain meetings, totally fine. <laughs> okay,
1: all right. Well, I respect it. You put some serious thought into that. <laughs> I don't know what I would choose because um, I attend a lot of meetings and events where it's expected that you're quiet, and I also attend church. So if I couldn't control yelling out obscenities in the middle of church, that would definitely be problematic for me. Um, although I would absolutely not want to be around people if I uncontrollably laughed when they gave me bad news. So it's kind of like an impossible situation.
2: Well, you could, like, in uncomfortable situations or sad situations, like, if you were to, like, say something obscene, like, it'd be fitting for that. And, like, laughing-wise, like, they could be like, dude, what the heck, like, that's mean. You yeah, know, so
1: you have a small percentage of a, of a chance of the person just laughing with you though. Yeah. So it could work out. They might just you might hit the right moment and they're just like they're okay with it. You know, I don't know. That's a pretty good answer. I like that. Where are you from?
2: I was born in Anchorage, Alaska. I grew up there for majority of my life. One year I went and lived in Fairbanks. And then I returned to Anchorage and then I moved out in the Valley when I turned 18.
1: Okay. When you were born, you said you were born in Anchorage. What was the setting? Were you born uh, with both your parents in the picture? Were you born to a single mom? Were you, what was the setting?
2: Um, I believe, so I've adopted. Um, okay. I believe the setting was like when, I was born, it was my mom and my dad, my birth parents. But that that didn't last long because my mom just handed me and my siblings off to my dad. Um, And then my dad was, like, both my parents were active in addiction. So when my mom passed me and my siblings to my dad, my dad just gave us to a family friend. And then I ended up in OCS custody from there.
1: Okay. How many siblings did you have?
2: I have six siblings biologically, two adoptive.
1: Okay. So when your mom gave you and your siblings, there was seven of you that got transferred to your dad? hmm And then a family friend. When he decided to have you guys go with a family friend, was there, did you, do you know if there, I mean, it was a long time ago, obviously. Was there reasoning behind it? Did he just decide, I can't do this?
2: Yeah, it, his I th- I'm pretty sure his reasoning was that he just wanted to drink and he couldn't stop drinking. Mm. And the family friend that he gave us to was sober but not a good person.
1: Oh. That is terrible.
2: It did not last long at all. So I was a jail baby. My my when my mom was pregnant with me, uh she was in jail. Wow. Um and I see that as a blessing because uh, my siblings have really bad FAS, and due to my mom being in jail, mine isn't as bad. So I see I see that as a plus of her being in a safe place and not drinking. Mm-hmm. But the, it didn't. I I was still an infant by the time I went to OCS custody because I don't, I don't know how OCS got involved, but they're. In that household with that guy, there was um, sexual abuse and physical abuse and neglect. Wow. And so, you know, like I have random marks in my body. I don't know where they came from. Burn marks, you know, scars due to being in that household when I was an infant. So it did not last long. And me and my siblings were split up. Two of my siblings aged out of the OCS system instead of being adopted. One of them died due to alcoholism. And one of them, that the other one that aged out is still an addiction. But basically all my siblings are in addiction right now. And wow. um, I am the only one so far that has got sober. So, yeah, they... They are taking our childhood trauma and everything really hard, and they don't know how to process it. And, you know, due to being uh, in the system, like I was the only one who actually got adopted at a young age. Mm. majority of my siblings got adopted or guardianship when they were teenagers. Mm. Um, And so they are very emotionally and mentally distraught and so they have a hard time connecting and a hard time reaching out. Mm-hmm. And so they're just, they're all doing their own thing, all drinking and everything. And it's, it's really sad because they reach out to me for help and like for money and stuff. And, you know, uh, <clears throat> I'm in a program and it says in that program that, it is too close for us to be able to properly help someone in our family, and that we can provide resources and tell them that we love them. But other than that, we are not in control of them and what they do, and that is their choice. And so it's it's really hard. Like when they reach out to me and they're struggling, um, and I just tell them resources. I tell them that I love them and that I've been sober for over a year now. You know, and I just like let them see that. Yes, we're from from the same bloodline, and yes, my whole biological family struggles with addiction, but I'm doing it, and you can do it too.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, yeah, I got into um, the family that I'm in now when I was two. So, from an infant to two, I was in and out of foster uh, care. I was. Um, they say I was in. Let's see. 12 houses before I was two and I by the time I reached the family that I'm in I was two and they adopted me when I was seven and I've I've been with them since and and I and I see like it's it's like a rose you know there's thorns and there's like safety and peace at the same time Mm -hmm. with being adopted by this family, because, you know, the family that I was adopted into is very sick. Um, And, but, you know, and at, at like, what, age 16, OCS got involved again due to um, abuse, physical abuse, and OCS gave me an ultimatum of going back into the system or going to treatment to not be near my mom. And I would rather choose go to treatment then go back into the system and experience what I experienced there. Mm. Um, Because I'd rather deal with, like, that physical abuse and, like, mental abuse rather than, like, sexual abuse and everything that was experienced in the system.
1: So I'm going to rewind just a little bit. First of all, congratulations on being over a year sober. Thank you. (laughs) Incredible. People always – I mean – My entire time that I've spent in recovery, AA meetings, NA meetings, whatever the case may be, wherever I was, people who I knew, my own experience and the experience of other people I've talked with that they've shared is that the first year was their hardest.
2: Absolutely.
1: And it is a big, big milestone. Like first 30 days, pretty big deal. Also, not still to me as hard as the first year. That year, Mark, feels like an eternity to get there. Is that what you experienced?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, like, the first 30 days um, was definitely difficult because you are you are still mentally obsessed. And, and I think for the first three months you are, you know. Like, mm-hmm. when you first stop drinking, you get sober. Um, there's that mental obsession, you know, like, I, I have become so reliant upon, upon alcohol to numb myself out and to, like, drown my thoughts and feelings. And so those first three months was hell because I was actually feeling my emotions, thinking thoughts, being aware of where I'm at, you know. And so those first three months were not easy. And three months, six months... Those milestones were really hard because the last time I tried getting sober, I almost got six months and then I relapsed. And so this time around, I was terrified um, of those milestones because the last time I relapsed and I did not want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were there were close calls for sure. Um, but like due to like being in a program, having a higher power, um a sponsor, you know, it's definitely helped like get me through that those hard moments and the women i have in my life have definitely helped guided and um were just just there for me. So it it was it was hell.
1: <laughs> yeah. And i want to highlight two things you said. You said that um you drowned your sour- so- sorrows and your feelings and thoughts, and you wanted to numb yourself, and that's common language used for people who drink. I've said that myself, and recently I've realized that, you know, it's not really true. We we don't actually numb anything; we mostly intensify it. Oh yeah. When we drink, the mostly what we're going for is the not remembering any of it when we wake up, mm-hmm. because when we drink, it everything everything becomes tenfold what it was prior.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We just get to experience it and then not remember it when we wake up. Yeah. And I want to, I just wanted to kind of speak on that for a second because it's a common misconception. And a lot of people also, I've heard people say, I drink because it makes me happy. It makes me happier. It really, its scientifically, it's a depressant. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't. It does not do that for people um, who use it for that purpose. It just, it tends to have the opposite reaction. And then uh, you said you were grateful for the women in your life, and I I just wanted to focus on that too because anybody going through something, you know, it doesn't really matter the gender of the people who are helping you. And there is something profoundly important when you surround yourself with you know, like for me with other men who have walked through what I've walked through and for you other women who have walked through what you've walked through. It is very profound and important and it oftentimes helps you to get a foundation that you couldn't get if it was you were like, you know, I I rarely have heard. Actually, I can't think right now, if I'm being honest, I can't think of one time I heard somebody said who was a, a female who was like, I'm thankful for all the men in my life who helped me out. You know, I'm so thankful for the rocks and of the men in my life that were there for me. You know, it's they they, they commend their, their fellow women who helped them. and The same with the men. And granted, it's not absolute. It's not that no man helped you. Yeah. It's not yeah. that no woman ever helped me. But there is something profound when you have a group of people, you know, men, women, supporting each other towards that same common goal. It's like it's just irreplaceable. Oh, yeah. Now let's go back one more time. Um, You you went through some pretty horrific things, and you said them in a very graceful way. I just want to commend you for going through what you went through. Being a year in recovery, you don't accidentally get there.
2: No, no, totally not.
1: (laughs) This whole past year, you have absolutely... You know, even though I wasn't with you, alongside you the whole time, I can pretty much make an educated guess that over this year you've been dealing with not just recovery, not just addiction, but your mental health, your trauma, healing, and a whole other laundry list of things that you had to do and walk through and work through to get to that year mark.
2: Oh, yeah. You know, like, yes, there's there's addiction, like, But I believe that um, alcoholism, it's not the alcohol itself. It's my thoughts, my brain, the way I think, the way I process things. And so to be like for me, for me to be in recovery and not drink, I also need to correlate with not drinking, but also working on myself mentally, Mm. physically, all these different aspects. And, you know, and like. With with the program I'm in, you know, you process through resentments mm. and you know all these different things of why you feel the way you feel and why you think the way you think, and just this past year I have nitpicked every little thing and processed through, like instead of just like ignoring it or putting it on the side, yes, um, you know, like that that childhood trauma. The, the trauma I experienced while drinking and all of that, you know, just and the, and the whole aspect of like a big part of it was a higher power, you mm-hmm. know, because I put myself in this cage relying only on myself and my thoughts and feelings. You know, I was restricting myself and, you know, with with being in recovery this time and having a spiritual awakening and finding a higher power, I am not in charge anymore, and I don't have to control every little thing. And it is not on me and my willpower mm. for me to be sober today. And so with whole working with someone um, on, like, the trauma, the the mental disorders, because I, I had a lot of those growing up, um, you know, just... Not putting myself in this box and letting myself grow has definitely helped. And Mm. self-exploration, you know, just, like, really finding out what I'm interested in, finding out who I am because I had no clue where I belonged, who I was. And and so, like, with having a clear mind now and not obsessing, over all the negative things in my life has mm. definitely helped not being um, a pessimist, you know, mm. majority of my life I was pessimistic and I focused in, intentionally on being depressed, having anxiety, the the abuse I experienced. You know, um, I was putting myself in this box and a big part of recovery is gratitude, you know, just realizing all the opportunities and amazing things that I've experienced so far in life. You know, like, yes, those bad things did happen. Let's not discount those. But at the same time, seeing all the great things in my life that are going on has definitely helped me get through everything.
1: So, hold up. Wait. Stop the press. (laughs) I think what I just heard you say was... That you intentionally focused on depression and negativity. Yep. So you're telling me that you can choose to focus on good things and positive as well.
2: Mm-hmm. It's 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 two-sided. So you could either choose to just focus on all the horrible things that are going on in your life or to see the silver lining in everything, you know? Like, seeing, like, yeah, this was horrible, but out of that, I learned this or I got this, Mm. you know? It's not, like, all just, like, one bad thing. Like, you get something out of it, even if it's bad.
1: So you're telling me there's a chance. (laughs) (laughs) No, I, I really think that is profound, and you're speaking so much of my language right now. One of my favorite quotes I use and and I first the first time I ever heard it, I actually read it on it was uh, in like these uh, adhesive letters and it was spelled out across the top of a wall in a children's pastor's office in Hawaii at a church called uh, King's Cathedral. Pastor Kirsten Davis. if you're listening to this ever, uh, I've never forgotten this phrase and I don't even know where it originated from. But it read, attitude is the difference between adventure and ordeal. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I have found that to be so unequivocally true in my life. What's going on around me, the way I respond to it, Mm -hmm. can change how I go through it. Exactly. And turn it from an ordeal to an adventure. And so the fact that you just said that to me is so powerful. And I want to encourage you anytime you talk to anybody. You say stuff like that, encourage people in that way. You're pretty wise. I didn't realize that about you. You're pretty wise. You're like a little Yoda over there
0: with all your your wisdom coming out. Thank you for listening to today's episode of My Voice. For local services here at my house, please call 373-4357. That's 373-HELP.